I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and dealmaking is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and dealmakers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a dealmaker's DNA. All right, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of uh, Dealmakers DNA. I'm uh, I'm very excited to have uh, the guest I have today, guy I respect uh, immensely. Also consider him a friend, um, and and a bit of a workout buddy as well. So, uh, John, thanks for uh, thanks for being here. We have John Dwyer. Workout buddy is a saying that perils in comparison to your output on the Peloton. But I will say this: you you definitely inspire me. That's for sure. Well, I appreciate it, man. It goes both ways. Trust me. So, so John, th- th- this is going to be a fun one. I mean, a lot of times uh, I'm speaking to people that have 30-year careers. I mean, you and I, although we're, you know, we have a decade plus in our careers, we're still not at a 30-year mark. Uh, I am saying that they're old and we're young, so we'll just go with that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and to be honest with you, I mean, I know your story to some degree. And uh, for those that don't know you, I- I- I'd love to start with, with a bit of a, a history lesson on uh, kind of where you came from and what you're up to now. And, and I think we should, we should spend some time on, on the path because I know that, uh, you know, we were joking right before we went on camera that, uh, you know, this is not the, the, the path that you probably had orchestrated in your mind of where you'd land up being. To start us off, I mean, well, like, talk about uh, the early years and how this kind of all started. Yeah, so I grew up in Scarborough. My parents are, uh, are immigrants from Ireland, you know, so had a very very humble upbringing and, you know, a lot of tough times financially as a kid. And I think that really motivated me to want to be able to control my own destiny, which is something that I still struggle with. And I think, you know, until you've got the right amount of uh, uh, digits to the left of the uh, decimal in the bank, you're probably always going to feel a little anxious. And I, I suspect for the rest of my life, I'll feel that way because, you know, we're all driven by this passion and this idea that it's, unfortunately never good enough, uh, which is kind of what gets us all out of bed in the morning. But, it's the blessing uh, and the curse, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's what driven people, I guess, have to have in a way. Yeah, I, I think so. I think, you know, look, we all have our own struggles um, and we find outlets. Obviously, we're all going through a very unique situation right now with COVID. But while we all can't go to our favorite restaurants and so on and so forth. It doesn't feel that the anxiety around it doesn't feel that dissimilar to 2007. And so I had charted a career to go into banking and was working towards uh, a master's in economics and finance. And then the whole economy fell apart, right? And the job that I had sought out at Bank of America, which I really wanted, I think there was 98 guys on that desk. Uh, they acquired Merrill. And I think the B of A team was out the door and they took all the Merrill guys, which really surprised people. So I was kind of like, what am I going to do? I, I don't know if I can swear during this, but <laughs> you fucking want. I was like, what the fuck am I going to do? Right? So, <laughs> so I, anyways, I was in school and I read an article in The Economist about, um, I think it was University of Denver or something. And they were making biodiesel out of used coffee grounds. And so I was like, what is biodiesel? And, and so I dug and dug and found out a lot about the industry, about the U.S. subsidies, about where things were going, and always had a, a strong interest in environmentalism. So this is going to be like the long story short, but anyways, went out and got a contract from Tim Hortons for 500 stores 
which equated to 37 million pounds of coffee grounds a year, which we were going to handle, extrude and then use the oil. And I, I can go into the to the dynamics of how you manufacture biodiesel, but essentially you use the lipid or the fat. And so coffee grounds, et cetera, have the oil and it was a waste product. So we got this contract and the company took off overnight. And then that side of the ba- business failed absolutely miserably <laughs> because, because the dynamic of, of extracting the oil, uh, we found out very quickly, about 40% of the mass of used coffee grounds is water. So you're transporting, your costs are incredibly high. There's a lot of things that go into it. So I had to get smart really quickly. And going through that process, I found out that Canada is the largest grower of flax in the world. Uh, we do 57% of the world's flaxseed. And you can't cook with flaxseed oil. And flaxseed oil makes beautiful biodiesel. So we started to purchase flaxseed oil from central and western, basically the prairies in Canada. And we, uh, I built a facility on three acres in the Toronto Portlands, Unwin Avenue, right at the bottom of Cherry Street. And uh, we built the third largest biofuel reactor in the country. And we would crush the flaxseed oil. You can't cook the flaxseed oil. It was uh, the, the Latin term for, for flaxseed is linseed. And uh, the, because it has a very low smoke point, you can't use it to, uh, to cook your food. And so for the 300 years prior to the modern you know, manufacture of plastics and rubbers, linoleum flooring, which is the main root, the main ingredient in linoleum flooring is flaxseed oil. So there was this real decline in its usage. And so we saw a huge opportunity there. So we would take the oil piece, turn it into fuel, and then the other component, we would turn it into animal feed. So we did the world's first omega-3 feed formulas, which we sold to Cargill, which is the largest privately held agriculture company in the world. And then we also had uh, the food component. And so we had the national contract with Canada Bread. And uh, so anyways, ran that company until 2014. Unfortunately, the Obama administration uh, had put in a subsidy uh, for fuel, for biofuel in the US at 25 cents a liter. So we were selling to Steam Whistle Breweries and to the Rogers Center and the City of Toronto and you name it. St. Mary's cement, uh, a very long list, at probably on aggregate of a dollar eleven a liter. And all of a sudden, you know, I'll never forget, it was February 27th, 2013. I'm very weird with remembering these dates when things go wrong. Uh, <laughs> I got a call from somebody very senior in the fuel industry and they said, you're never going to turn your reactor back on. Your business is done. Because we were producing at a dollar eleven, and the United States was doing the same, but getting a twenty-five cent subsidy. Right. So the city of Toronto, for instance, started to purchase uh, all of its biofuel, the four point nine million liters a year that it uses for the TTC, all comes from Florida now because it's just more economical. Supporting local businesses, I guess. Right. Exactly. But uh, you know what? That, but that's that's another thing, right? Like I look at my career as being defined by a lot of the things that didn't go right. I very rarely remember the things that went really well, to be honest with you, because I think it just, it just keeps you humble and more alive. And, uh, and that's what, you know, critically, we're all here to do, right? No matter what your age or what industry you're in. I mean, you have one of the more eclectic career paths. We're going to go into a lot more detail, because uh, I know you've done a lot of things since then. But the one thing that strikes me with you, even when I have discussions with you, it's like you have this natural 
like you're just an inquisitive individual. You really like to question things. You really like, you're curious. You're naturally curious. Where do you think that, well, first off, do you agree? And, and, and second, where do you think that comes from? That's a good question, man. I, I think, you know, when, um, my mom has been a respiratory physician at a, ho- a hospital in Scarborough, a respiratory therapist, not a physician, at a hospital in Scarborough since we were, you know, ever since she came to Canada. And my dad was an entrepreneur and he had a lot of ups and downs in his career. Unfortunately, more downs than ups. And uh, so that made a lot of things kind of difficult growing up because, you know, you'd have these amazing experiences and, you know, get to be part of meetings and see businesses grow, et cetera. But then, of course, you get the downside of living with an entrepreneur who tends to shoot a little too much from the hip. And then you see that that downside part. But the one thing that we grew up in with in our house is even in the absence of having money was books. And uh, in my dad, in the back portion of our home, there must have been, geez, I don't know, 3,000 books. And um, <clears throat> my father wrote seven novels, two of which I wrote with him. We also wrote a play together about Robert Service, who's a famous Scottish-Canadian poet. And so I think that really was at the root of it. You know, I remember there was an article in 2006 that I read about, I don't know if Jamie Dimon was the head of Goldman Sachs then or not, but whomever was, the article said, uh, for the investment banking side, bring me your poets. And the idea was that it's not just having a firmly rooted experience and understanding in just finance. It's liberal arts. It's, you know, being well-read. It's understanding that that side of anyone's experience really lends itself to how you critically analyze everything in life, but not the least of which businesses. And so I think for me, growing up in a very literary household was a crucial catalyst to wanting to be an entrepreneur. But at the same time, you know, what it does is it creates a passion sometimes that can fuck you up because, because you know, it, it can blind you. You know, you just, you are a dreamer. And so when you think like that, if for me, it's been an uphill battle to understand that pragmatism needs to get in the way sometimes of your dreams. And I, you know, I now have a very different approach to business than I did when I started my first company 13 years ago in 2007. And I, you know what, to be honest with you, I kind of long a little bit for that lack of pragmatism. And I kind of, I, I wish I had a little bit more of the childlike quality that I had back then because, you know, you, you really get to jump into things. But I'm definitely a very different operator. I'm, I'm far more transactional now than I would be an operator back then. It's interesting because, you know, you speak about your father and kind of the tumultuousness of potentially too much risk that he took at times because obviously he was a dreamer, but I don't, I don't sense any resentment for that. Where no, I don't. It's interesting no, not at all. because I think a lot of children seeing that it may persuade them to go a different course and not take that kind of risk, but you've actually doubled down on that and, and really taken a lot from that in a positive way. Why do you think that is? And why didn't that push you in, the, in, the, in a different direction to say, you know what, I don't want to take this much risk. I want to have a more certain life. I want to, you know, be, be more pragmatic. The honest answer really is, is my life partner is my wife, Lindsay. She's just been a real catalyst in me becoming more emotionally intelligent. And so I'm sure that there were times in the past where I 
probably did resent that. And I think that's a huge, you know, honesty is like, is everything in this game, right? You know, and, and I think the honesty has to start with being honest with yourself. And so you've got to realize what you're good at, you know, what you're bad at. And more importantly, to dive deep into those things that get in front of you. And so for me, obviously, there's a propensity to, to, you know, look back and say, hey, look, that was really tough growing up or, you know, that that was a difficult experience. But I've always, I've always used it and it's always been central to my narrative in that honesty about where I came from. And I've got friends just like you that are big fund managers that went to private schools and blah, blah, blah. And I don't resent them for that. And I, I think that must have been a fabulous experience growing up. And I, I don't, you know, I think everybody comes from somewhere. But I think a lot of people, especially nowadays in the social media culture, feel this need for pretension and this need to demonstrate that you come from a component of like being elite or being part of something. Whereas I just never looked at it that way. I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to be who I am. And if guys don't like it, they don't like it. I always say, you know, there's this incredible freedom that comes from being self-aware and comfortable with yourself. Right. I mean, I think that's a process that people go through as they get older. But, you know, you, you touched on self-awareness when you said, you know, you got to recognize that there's, there's things that you're good at, things that you're bad at. How much of that do you think is just innate DNA? Because, I mean, it sounds like you have similar DNA to your father in terms of, you know, just that pure kind of entrepreneurial spirit. I'm a massive believer that there are certain inherent qualities that are very nature driven. And I think that self-awareness, in my opinion, is one of them. Where do you sit on that spectrum? I definitely think that there's a lot of the nature component, you know, the, the concept of nature versus nurture and what you can and can't change. For me, again, I share a lot with my wife in terms of my career and I share all my successes with her. And I hold the failures to be known. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, for, for me, that's, that's really been like, if I look at myself, who I was 13 years ago to, to who I am today, just a totally different guy. You know, I'll, I'll give you an example. So after Flax Energy, I ran a couple of different companies, which was very much more transactional, and then came to be the CEO of a company called Arius Technologies, which is now just absolutely growing like crazy. And so an individual uh, and I took that business over, and I w- won't go into detail because it wouldn't be fair, but anyways, we ended up having a falling out, and these things happen in business. And this whole experience of COVID and what's going on really made me realize that we had a great relationship. And you know what? I had some culpability in admitting that I had done some things that, that hurt that relationship too. So I took it upon myself this week to reach out to him. And we've since, you know, rekindled what was previously a great, like, 15-year relationship. And, you know, I found a tremendous amount of strength in being vulnerable about what I got wrong. And the outcome from that, which is, like, arguably one of the most difficult things on the planet to do, right, is to, there's two operators in the world. There's Bobby Axelrod, you know, from Billions. And you're just stalwart and you're tough and you meld the world into the shape that you want it to be and nothing compromises that. Or there's the the alternative that, you know, you can try to grow and try to understand that you got things wrong in the past. And so I've become increasingly a believer in the notion that 
if you could admit to yourself that you got certain things wrong, you become so much better in business, right? And you become so much better of an asset to your business partners and the people around you because no matter what anybody wants to say, you bring business home, right? You bring all of your problems home. And so you can't avoid that. And so my most recent philosophy amongst all these things is to try and diminish conflict and bad relationships. Because at the end of the day, you're the one that walks around holding that. It is an inescapable truth that when you have a conflict with somebody where you have a sense of ownership for what went wrong, it's really not going to go away the feeling until you, until you resolve it. So again, I, you can probably tell by the way I, I'm chatting that the philosophical element of business for me and the relationships that I build with people, I think it's everything, man. It's, it is, it's at the crux of everything I do. I couldn't agree more. And I want to double down because this is one of the subject matters that I haven't spoken a lot about in the past in other podcasts, but I'm such a huge believer. I know that you and I have had this conversation is how important the partner you spend your life with is. And, and, and my whole philosophy with my wife is, you know, people always say they have this whole thing about behind any good man or woman is another better man or woman. And, uh, but I firmly believe it's true. And, and the reason I say that is because I think the confidence that I have to take risks and have an uncertain life as an entrepreneur has to be somewhat balanced by some form of stability, right? You can't have uncertainty in every part of your life. It just doesn't work. I mean, that's what happens with drug addicts and you see what happens, right? I mean, in order to take an immense amount of risk like we do as entrepreneurs, I truly believe there has to be a counterbalance. And the counterbalance for me is having the certainty in my relationship. I've been with my wife since I was 18 years old you know, married since we were 26. And, uh, you know, having that at home has absolutely allowed me to be calmer in the decision-making, definitely be more vulnerable and be very confident in that vulnerability because, you know, no one uses that word. And I think it's such an important word. I mean, being vulnerable is so essential to building meaningful human connections in every part of your life. And I think people just don't, people view it as a weakness when it's absolutely a tool that should be used in a very meaningful and positive way. I totally agree with you. Look, it's, you see it all the time. You see it in French philosopher Foucault said that people are able to rise to the challenge in times that provide for them to be successful. So if you look at whatever, the mid 17th century leading up to you know, the expansion in the United States, there was very limited opportunity for people to be successful, right? There was, there was not a lot that was in the way of commerce, <clears throat> entrepreneurialism, etc. But if you look at the United States and how the story is told afterwards, after 1776, you start to see the rise of a lot of these large families. And like uh, Hawthorne said, and it's quoted in the movie, that families are always rising and falling in America. And so that whole idea to me and the notion that people can be great at any given time, but it's really about being rooted in a period of history where opportunity is available to you, that's like one component. And it's really important to kind of acknowledge that and to take advantage of your surroundings. But to your point, you know, at the end of the day, what we're afforded is an opportunity to be collaborative and to be emotionally intelligent about how we go about making decisions. You know, if you you read anything about uh, John Adams, um, Paul Giamatti played the character in, in the John Adams uh, uh, documentary on, um, on HBO. 
And you look at the relationship that he had with his wife, right? I mean, this was somebody who was hugely pivotal to American history and to its growth. And, you know, his wife was the one behind him that really provided him the confidence and the backbone to go out and be great. And, you know, there's examples of that with uh, wives and husbands. I don't mean to be gender specific. But so, yeah, I, I just totally agree with you that that is arguably the most important part of building your ability to, to be great. How do you think, you know, we can have a meaningful impact and convince younger macho type A personalities that vulnerability should be viewed as a, an asset you double down on versus a weakness you run from? That's a really good question, right? I mean, we live in an era currently where, you know, you're seeing a quality the velocity of, of, of like, you know, equal voices uh, happening at such a fast pace. And it's a special thing. So, you know, I think the generations that are coming up now, including our generation and folks older than us, are going to really change their mind around how they view the world and their relationships. So I guess the thing that I always lean towards is it's vulnerable with a tough grit. Like, don't let anybody tell you who the fuck you are. You know what I mean? That's for me, that's a a big thing and so being vulnerable is an expression of the fact that you're like hey look here's what i'm good at here's what i'm not good at here's where i'm going to compromise and here's what i'm not going to compromise and so i think that all goes back to this concept of emotional intelligence right and as it is you know as somebody works on bay street like yourself that is increasingly (laughs) a rare phenomenon right everybody is brawny there's not a lot of discussion around where people are or are not vulnerable, especially in the broker networks. But I think that's all, you know, that's going to change. And I I guess it has to come down to two things, um, where you feel confident and where you feel inadequate and be okay with both of them. Before we jump back to your kind of career path, one of the things that you mentioned earlier that's been in the back of my, uh, my mind stewing was how you remember all these negative things that have happened. Uh, you know, even the dates of when they happen. There's no question, and I say this to people, that as an entrepreneur, there's a lot more lows and highs. And for, for whatever reason, for people like you and I, the highs make up for the lows. But how do you take it in the you-know-what over and over again and still get up to fight another day? I mean, is, is that born? Is that learned? Is it a combination of both? Because I don't think that everyone has that. I guess having a mortgage is one way to motivate yourself. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, You know what? For me, I have always, and this is something I've really worked at, I've always had this innate need to, I don't want to say satisfy people, but to prove to people that I was like doing a good job and I was worthy, right? So even when things were kind of going sideways, I was floating like a butterfly and staying like a bee and just working my way through problems. And, you know, even um, again, talk about being vulnerable, be honest, had a conversation, you know, with, with my wife last night and she said, you know, you, you have to get over this notion that you need to keep impressing everybody. And it is what it is. Like, that's just part of my DNA. And so I'm always, and, and, and I, by the way, that's not like in a disingenuous way where like, you know, fabricating things. It's, I just have this drive to be successful. And I have this drive and I have like so many inadequacies. You could fucking traipse them to the bottom of the sea and back. But 
one thing that I do have in spades is just a never quit attitude, right? And so obviously there are lows and people go through uh, the feeling of self-doubt and what difficulties in business uh, bring is either you quit or you develop a deeper sense of resolve. And for me, I don't know if I'm psychotic or what it is, but I've always just had this sense of resolve. And I was like, fuck it, I'm not giving up. And and you're not going to stand in the way of it. And just being transactional, right? And just saying, look, you know, I'm on the board of five different companies right now. I was CEO of two of them, you know, vice chair and director of two of those two. And there was fractious times all throughout that experience. And, you know, it's not uncommon that somebody was formerly a CEO and is now only on the board because they lost confidence of certain board members. So you can draw your own conclusions. But at the end of the day, you know, I stuck with it. And I had a very good, so I'll give you an example, a very good friend of mine, uh, Mike Woolat, who ran the Canadian Venture Capital Private Equity Association. He's now uh, the Canadian director for Hamilton Lane, which is a multi multi-billion dollar fund. And I remember we were going through a difficult experience for myself, and he was my advisor as a fellow board member. And he said to me, how you handle this and the emotion or lack thereof of how you govern yourself during this period of time is going to be a real big indicator to everybody else on the board and to people moving forward in the future as to the kind of leader you are. And it was great great advice. And I followed his advice and I was calm and collective and it was the best thing I ever did. And it was, it was, it was a total game changer for me. So you like me, I mean, you, you just spoke about how many things you're doing right now. You like me are ADD beyond belief. We are <laughs> a million great. different things. Has your mind changed or what's your view on like spreading yourself too thin? Because it's something I think about all the time. You know, I, I, I was joking around with you. I'm like, John, I have no idea what you do. But I would say the same thing to me. It's like most people have no idea what I do because I do too many things. But it's what makes me happy. But the one thing I definitely have decided on is a little more focus in my life is going to be essential to kind of double down on those strengths, as you mentioned. But I'm finding that there is a point of two things. And I don't know if you've, if, if you've felt that, if you believe that, or, or you think you could do everything and, and all things. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I definitely don't think I can do everything in all things and, and have felt stretched thin. I think for me, I'm moving further away from being an operator and more so, as I mentioned a few times now, to being transactional. So, you know, I'll give you a, just a few examples. So I'm on the board of a company called Rebel Stork, which is growing incredibly quickly. It's a secondary retailer for gently used baby goods and for the wholesale market. Uh, it's run by an incredible uh, CEO. She's just amazing. And so when we first started that business, you know, I found that there was a strain in terms of the need for me to help in raising the capital while I was raising capital for other businesses. And while I was, you know, CEO of another company, I was working for, I was head of global sales and partnerships for Enthusiast Gaming at the time, which is the largest publicly traded esports company in the world. So it was like so much going on. And so I had to make a decision. It was either say, hey, look, I'm going to step down from the board or I just honestly say, hey, look, I don't have the time or the bandwidth to play this role. And so thankfully, I chose to do the latter and I stayed on the board. And now the company's killing it. But, you know, I had to be really honest 
with the CEO and the operator at that time and just say, hey, look, you know, I really want to help and I'm going to lend as much of a hand as I can. But I had, you know, so many other asks out at the moment for other deals that I was part of, right? And the one thing, you know, like uh, I started my career in politics. I worked for uh, Norm Kelly, who was the deputy mayor who took over from, uh, from Rob Ford. He was formerly a member of parliament in Trudeau Senior's government back in the 80s. So I think long story short, I worked for him as his EA from 2004 to 2006-ish, maybe a little bit less than that. And one of the things that he said to me was, you know, in politics, you only have so many asks. And so I think one of the real crucial things in business, and as you know, you run a fund, you run your own biz, you, you know what I'm talking about. If you've got six deals going and you go back to the same six guys at wherever it may be, and you're just consistently making asks, guys are going to be like, dude, I'm going to, I got to stop answering this guy's calls. You know what I mean? Because you're always on the take. And so that for me is where I find the being stretched thin. But in terms of sitting on boards, my favorite, like my favorite thing in the world is given is having conversations like this. So, you know, being on boards and working with operators and helping provide advice, especially helping provide calm advice when things aren't going their way. I love that. That's the greatest thing. It's my favorite hobby outside of riding the Peloton with you. But uh, the part where you get stretched thin is on financing because politics and finance, just like politics, you only got so many asks. So, so the podcast is called The Dealmaker's DNA. And, and quite frankly, as I've progressed in my career, I now probably consider myself more of a dealmaker than, than an operator. There, there are far better operators than I am, as evidenced by every company that uh, I, I, <laughs> I feel the same way. They are far better what they do than, than what I do. And I, I've always been fascinated watching deal makers that I consider incredibly good at their craft and ones that are just horrendous. And we've all seen it. I mean, I, like we all seen the 65-year-old guy who's done a quadrillion deals on Bay Street, lost everyone money on pretty much every deal. And not because they're a shyster, but because they don't know what the hell they're doing. And maybe I'm just venting right now, but I do have a question. And my my question is, like, what are those attributes that you've seen a consistency amongst those great dealmakers who are respectable, who genuinely give a shit about making investors money and the opposite? Like, are there some trends that you've noticed? Loyalty. Loyalty is is a big one. You look at, I mean, I don't know if it's appropriate for me to say people's names right now. So I just won't because you shouldn't say folks' names without their consent. But, you know, I work with two older fellas. Uh, one who's much, much older, who's who runs one of you know Canada's largest funds, and he backs my deals, and he's just a terrific guy. But loyalty and honesty, and I know that sounds like naive, and it sounds like like a fairy tale, but you know the ten things they don't teach at Harvard Business School, right? Is <laughs> the number one piece is deals that aren't fair in the long run don't get done, and I think you know having a sense of loyalty to the people that are part of your transaction because you can be a promoter, right? Like you can, you can be one of the many people that did well on, on weed deals, um, for instance, or people that did well on crypto, et cetera. But like, it's very few and far between. And so what I believe in order to have a lasting career on Bay street is to forge relationships that are largely predicated on being able to pick up the phone and tell somebody things went sideways. And guys appreciate that. The right ones, they get it. And people's fortunes change very, very quickly in this game. And so 
to see the guys that have done it right. In my experience, it's been the ones that, um, you know, they support each other. So, you know, you've got a transaction that you like. We're going to do, you know, proper due diligence. We're not just going to stuff it with dumb money and then make it a promote. And then nobody hits the bid when it goes public. Like there's a million guys who are out there doing that. But the ones much like yourself that, you know, focus on businesses that have good bones, that have good operators, that have good fundamentals, and then invest in them and do it for the long run. The company that I'm a part of, uh, Arius Technologies, which I mentioned earlier, we've got really great investors. And there's been times where we could have taken it public over the past two years and just backed it into a, you know, into a shell and done the RTO. And uh, outside of director lockups, just, you know, everybody could have gotten their money. We decided to, people didn't pressure that. People who are debenture holders didn't create negative pressure to try and drive the company into a public vehicle because they knew as a private company that it was going to be far more fruitful in the long run for shareholders. And so I think, you know, that for me was a huge learning experience because as as somebody who's a large shareholder in the company, I could have done very well and I will in the long run, but it was the right thing to do to not back it into an RTO and just exploit the whole deal. So that's just that function of me saying people who do the right thing in the long run, they make the most money. So there's going to be some young individuals listening to this that the sexiness of, of quote unquote, being a mover and a shaker and a deal maker on Bay Street is their goal, right? It's, it's where they want to go. Are there any words of advice you could give them? Like any, like where, where would you start? And, and why I say that is I'm actually a big believer that like you, I went the operating route. And I think that really understanding how companies build themselves from the ground up outside of just spreadsheets gives you a fuck ton more empathy for what it actually takes to build a business. And when you are in deal-making mode, you're able to communicate with operators in a far deeper way than if you're not. So I don't know if this, like, I think that's a huge piece of advice I would give someone, but are there other things that you would do if, you know, young John is, uh, is sitting, uh, listening to this saying, I want to be a deal maker one day? Well, you know, nobody starts the uh, the season in the, NA, in the in the Stanley Cup Finals, right? You've got to play the 82-game season, and then you've got to make it through the four rounds of the playoffs in order to get there in the hopes that you can win it in under seven games or in seven games. So all of that is is an example to say that everybody's got to start somewhere, and, you know, you've got to learn when to take those risks and to surround yourself with the right people. I was really, really fortunate, like in terms of how I became integrated into some of the better networks uh, in the country as it relates to financing for a kid that, you know, came from Scarborough and didn't have any dough and didn't know anybody. But for me, I was out every night. My dad said he can't score goals unless you get ice time. So like I was at, I was at the Avenue Bar at the Four Seasons. I was at Beast I 90 at Barbarians at, you know what I mean? And just out there meeting people and taking taking folks out to dinner and building relationships. And so for me, that was really the catalyst. And then, you know, the, the morning would go to a factory that I built, which still blows my mind, the size and scope of this factory that we built and worked with very, very different people with very different experiences than the Bay Street bankers, right? So I think the whole, to your point, for me, I think success became a function of understanding my audience 
and uh, appreciating every person differently. I think a lot of times when folks get a little taste of success, they tend to, uh, you know, treat some people with more regard than they would others. And what's the old moniker, treat the janitor like you would the CEO. And I think for me, that's a really big component because for two things, A, like just have a fucking sense of humanity and don't be a dick. But, but, but secondly, you just never know who's going to be part of your next deal or what relationship you're going to need in 20 years or in 20 hours. And so just have a sense of empathy for people and go around and govern yourself in a nice fashion. Be smart, be like smile and treat people well. You know, I think far too many people, especially in the finance community are just arrogant and cocky and you end up regretting that shit every fucking time. You know, it's, it's so true. And, and it's, it's interesting when, you know, in my work life, you're around a whole bunch of zeros when you're working on deals and it's very easy to get lost, lost in like the lack of reality of, of what that all is. And, and one of the, 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 the key things that I think has been really important for me in maintaining really good relationships is staying grounded, uh, just like you mentioned. And I think, you, I mean, you're a master at building fast friends and it's authentic. I see it. I mean, one of the things that, I, that I've, I've always been most impressed with with you is, is your ability to just connect with people and, and how it truly does come from an authentic standpoint. But what are some of the tools that, that one can use to like, ensure that they're staying humble because i think that i i've seen some individuals who are really good human beings they get lost in the world and just didn't have the right tools in place or the right home with their you know with with a good partner that kind of kept them grounded you know are, are there things that you've done as pattern of behavior like i i like philanthropy i know that you're involved in some some philanthropic things as well. I mean, what are some of the tools that you use to, to stay grounded and ensure that you don't lose sight of the big picture? I don't really, really know how to answer that question. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think every, it's, it's always kind of like on an ad hoc basis, right? Like he, I think family is for me is huge. Obviously I've got two little girls and a great wife. And so I really try to focus there. And I think surrounding myself with the right people, uh, in spite of the fact that Doing deals with some folks may be advantageous in the near term. The long-term reputational damage is something that I've come to realize can be the biggest hindrance. But I, again, I don't know if it's appropriate to say folks' names or not, but you know, the CEO of arguably Canada's largest investment bank is a good friend of mine. And the one thing that I notice about him is that he gives people the time of day, you know, and everybody can have a reputation for you know, in any direction. And that's just going to happen in this game because unfortunately on some transactions, there's winners and losers, but this particular guy just always gives people the time of day and doesn't need to, you know what I mean? And, and that's the one quality that I notice about him. And I just find it so remarkable. And it, what it does is it, it endears everyone to him, you know, like you walk in the room and, uh, you know, you, you spend two minutes, well, I don't know, you spend two minutes with the doorman at the King Eddie Hotel and give him the time of day and have a discussion with him and ask how his family is. People see that and people understand that, okay, that's a genuine guy. Like he, he cares about the people around him. And that has such a lasting effect on relationships. And so for me, what I always try to do is just be mindful when you're in the room and when you see people and give them a time of day. 
Sometimes that's completely impossible because you've got a transaction that's falling off the table or you've got, you know, any number of difficult things happening at any given time. And so, you know, you you want to be really nice, but you're like <laughs> just a million miles past somebody. But when when you're able, I think it's it's the greatest quality to to just give people the time of day. As my mother would say, be a mensch. There are some words that uh, you, you, you just can't get the same without it being Yiddish. And uh, a mensch is one of them. <laughs> so, 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 John, I'm not, I, I told you an hour and I'll stick to it. You know, if people want to follow your journey, where can they find you? I know you're on LinkedIn. Is there any other places that they can keep track of your, uh, your story as it, un, as it un, uh, what, what's the word? Unravels? Not, not unravels. That's a bad thing. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? I guess Twitter. I mean, I, I've actually, I used to post a lot more on Twitter, but because the news is also dire right now and it's, it's also negative, I, I've really pulled back from social media a lot lately. But, uh, you know, you follow me on Instagram. All my Instagram stuff is just me and my kids doing silly things. So that's, you know, I'm, I'm very protective about that side. And I think that's something that everybody should do is really have that, that uh, sovereignty between you know, your public life and your private life and who you want to share those moments with. But um, I guess Twitter and, and to a certain degree LinkedIn, but, you know, I'm a fairly, for, for somebody who's a pretty gregarious and outgoing guy, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty tight when it comes to what information I do and don't share, which I think is increasingly good quality. Yeah. And I know that they can follow along with your, your company's progressions. I know you mentioned Arius. Um, yeah. I, uh, I know you mentioned uh, Rebel Stork. Um, Store. have uh, Wonder Gaming as well. Yeah, uh, so Wonder Gaming is really, really exciting. We're, as I mentioned, I was previously the global head of sales and partnerships for Enthusiast Gaming, which is an amazing company. Menasha Kestenbaum, who built it, is just a fabulous guy. Very, very bright. Adrian Montgomery, the CEO, is an incredibly bright guy. It's just got all the right people around the table. So I ran uh, the sales and partnership side for that, but my entrepreneurial bug kicked in and so I left and I started Wonder Gaming, which is an esports acquisition fund. I run it with Chris Loringer, who is Robert Kraft, who owns the New England Patriots, uh, his CEO for Kraft Gaming, and uh, Mike Cotton, who is uh, Len Asper's uh, CEO at uh, Rumble Gaming. So the three of us started this. I'm CEO, so it's my full-time gig. And um, we've partnered up with uh, Jonathan Carroll, who built iTravel 2000, amongst a variety of other assets. And we're building a loyalty and rewards model for esports. So that's obviously a really fascinating space. And if you look at you know the loyalty and rewards model, everything we do, we're constantly accumulating points, right? So uh, so much of esports uh, occurs online. So much, so uh, so many, if not all of the transactions occur uh, via an affiliation with a title, which is a video game or a player that you like or a team that you follow. So we're building out a model to basically mirror. That is very exciting. It's going to be uh, going public uh, sometime in the, in the near future. I don't, know if that's, I don't know if that's too much disclosure. We'll see what the Securities Exchange has to say when they see this interview. Well, John, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, man. And uh, best of luck with all your endeavors. And uh, I know that we will uh, be talking to, seeing a lot more of you in the future, that's for sure. Okay, my friend. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.